welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Well, it's been mentioned already, but last weekend we started this series called A Long Story Short, or Long Story Short. And we're looking at what will turn out to be the five shortest books in the Bible. All of them, one chapter books. And each week we're going to read a different one, just like Kayla read a moment ago. We'll read each one and we'll consider each one uh, over the next several weeks. And each week we want to encourage you to read the book for the upcoming week. So next week, we're going to study Philemon. I'll talk about this more later on, but you want to be reading that this week. Some of you have spent time this past week reading Obadiah. I hope you had. Otherwise, what you just heard won't mean anything to you. And even if you read it a hundred times, it probably doesn't mean much to you because it is a challenging, obscure, what in the world is going on here? What is he talking about? And uh, it's not easy to read. I'm sure you weren't uplifted by Kayla's fine reading of it. It certainly is not light reading. Um, Obadiah is the shortest of the 66 books, um, or the shortest of the 37 books in the Old Testament. But as we just heard, and again, I know this is hard to get at in one reading, but it packs a wallop. It's actually hard to read. It's hard to listen to someone read. And it's hard to read both because it addresses a historical situation that we are probably not all that familiar with, but even more so, it is hard to read and hard to listen to because it reveals characteristics, attributes of God that we may not like and we may not want. Because in Obadiah, we see God's judgment being poured out on those who rebel against him, but especially being poured out on those who mistreat his people. In Obadiah, we might say we find a God who does not play games. We find a God who will not allow injustice to perpetuate forever. He eventually makes wrongs right. He eventually holds those accountable who have arrogantly defied him uh, and oppressed his people. It's hard reading. And we may find that. This is the only Old Testament book. This is the only prophet that we're going to be reading. But just to make the comment, I would encourage us to stay in these tough passages when we come across them. They are difficult to read. They're hard to understand. But I would encourage us to stay in it. It doesn't make a lot of sense if this book ends up in our Bible and we come across it and don't really like it or don't really get it and just have a way to sort of shove it aside. I I would suggest that the Spirit of God has kind of an interesting way of churning things up in us as we continue to read and reflect on even these harder passages and stories. So Obadiah is commonly called a minor prophet. Minor in part because it is a shorter book and a shorter prophecy, certainly compared to the longer prophecies of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. But the situation that prompted Obadiah's prophecy is not minor at all. And the writing of this book is, believe it or not, extremely relevant and even timely for us in our situation today. So let's start with the historical situation that prompted this prophecy. The message of this book was given to the Israelites who were living at the time in Israel's southern kingdom. At the time of this prophecy, there was a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Israel, and the southern kingdom was known as Judah, and Jerusalem 
was the center of that kingdom. Now, there's some discussion as to what was the actual historical timing of this prophecy. There's a little bit of debate on that. But Obadiah's words were likely delivered to these Israelites living in the southern kingdom shortly after the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem, destroyed the temple that was there, ransacked the city, and took the Israelites off into exile. In fact, this exile, this Babylonian exile, was a monumental event in Israel's history, and it's something that we read about in all sorts of passages in the Bible. It's actually the topic of many of the prophetic books in the Bible, and all of this happened around 586 BC. So imagine a group of people, their lives just destroyed, they're grieving the loss of loved ones who have been destroyed by Babylonian swords, they're despondent over the destruction of the temple, which they identified as the presence of God. They're despondent over the destruction of Jerusalem. They identified as the city of God. They are a defeated people, and they are a hopeless people. And here comes Obadiah with a prophecy about a people and a place called Edom, E-D-O-M. As the book begins, the vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God, concerning Edom. So this is a prophecy for the Israelites and given to the Israelites, but it is about a people called the Edomites. Now, who were they? Well, in God's sweeping story of redemption and restoration, if we look at the Bible from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, one way to describe what we are reading about is we are reading the story of God's unfolding revelation and his redemption narrative. And we're reading it from beginning to end. And all along the way, believe it or not, the pieces and the parts that may seem like, huh, what is that there for, have a place and a role in God's sweeping redemption narrative. So in his sweeping redemption narrative, if we go back to Genesis, we will find that Abraham's wife, Sarah, gave birth to Isaac, and Isaac's wife, Rebekah, had twins, eventually, named Esau and Jacob. And in Genesis 25, beginning in verse 22, we read, The Lord said to Rebekah, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. Now, you may know the rest of this story, but these twins that were in Rebekah when these words came to her, these twins grow up, and one day the younger brother, Jacob, <clears throat> he steals the older brother Esau's birthright, and later on he steals the blessing of their father that was reserved for the oldest. Now, this may not sound like much to us. Okay, we'll just give another blessing, but this would be like a sibling somehow convincing a lawyer to change the documents around an inheritance so that one sibling got everything and the other siblings got nothing. So this was a big deal. And in Genesis 27:41, the older brother Esau says, it says he hated Jacob and he planned on killing his brother Jacob as soon as their father died. So in this family, between Esau, one brother, and Jacob, the other brother, there was bitterness, there was tension, and just as the prophecy to Rebekah had said, there was division 
between these siblings. So here's how this all ties into Obadiah, what we just read. Jacob's name was eventually changed to Israel, and he became the father of the Israelites. Esau was the father of the Edomites. And just like the brothers Jacob and Esau were divided and fought, this feud between them lasted for generations. It's been about 800 years in the, when what we read in Obadiah since those two were walking around. And all during that time, there was bitterness and hatred between the Israelites and the Edomites. They were a family, ultimately. They were cousins, but they were at odds and at war with each other. Then one day in 586 BC, the Babylonians invaded Israel and destroyed it and destroyed the temple. And what Obadiah is about is how the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, who lived just to the south of Israel, Israel's blood brother, Jacob's blood brother, what Obadiah is about is it is God's judgment on the Edomites because they helped Babylon. And they helped Babylon mostly, and this is crucial, by standing aside as a spectator and letting all this destruction happen. So they helped the Babylonians destroy Israel by standing back and doing nothing to stop it. And remember, the Israelites were family to the Edomites. <clears throat> Obadiah put it this way in verses 10 and 11 of what Kayla read. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day you stood aloof, on the day strangers captured his wealth, while foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were just like one of them. So God is bringing his judgment to the Edomites because they failed to help their brother and act on his behalf. They stood aside, they stood back, and they watched. And again, if you read Obadiah in preparation, you probably didn't catch it when Kayla read it, but if you read it at all this week, there's just this stinging language of this prophecy where God says to these Edomites, I'm going to make you small among the nations and utterly despised. He says in verse 4, you think you're all secure because you live in these mountain clefts. That's where this whole you're as high as eagles things. You live up on high ground and you think you're secure and you think you're safe. Well, I'm going to bring you down, God says to them in verse 4. And in verse 15, he says, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. And this prophecy ultimately is fulfilled. You don't hear today about the Edomites or the country of Edom. So here's a little book in the Bible directed at a situation that unfolded some 2,600 years ago, and yet it still has significant implications for you and I today. So let's talk about one of those implications. One of those implications is just to recognize that indifference is the opposite of love. Think about this this idea of indifference in a sports context. It's pro football playoff time, as some of you may know. And just think this through. Some of the teams, the Bears, 49ers, the Bears, the Raiders, the Steelers, 
the Bears. I'm trying to catch everybody whose affiliation I'm aware of. The Rams. Mr. Pat Rizel. The Cowboys. For some reason, Mr. Randy Chance. The Broncos, a whole host of you. And then there's the Green Bay Packers. Some of you like them. Think of all those teams. The opposite of love is when you no longer care. When it no longer matters. So if you say, you know what, I hate the Packers. At least your soul is still engaged in the adventure. However misguided it may be, at least it's still engaged in the adventure. But if you're indifferent toward, for example, the Packers, if you don't care, if it never crosses your mind, then they are in essence dead to you. Indifference is the opposite of love. This is true in relationships. Obviously a little more serious venue. Indifference is the opposite of love in our relationships. If you're mad or you're hurt or you even hate, at least at a minimum, your soul is still at some level engaged. But the real danger is when you no longer care. Where the other really doesn't matter anymore. Or to use the word, the other really makes no difference to you. So you are indifferent to them. For those who have been a Christian for a while or around church settings for a while, there's a familiar language that gets learned. There's regular exposure to a common set of themes. The Bible is a rich book, but when we've been around it or when we've been in it for a while, we start to know it in a way. And perhaps we start to think we can predict its next move. So it becomes like watching reruns of a favorite show. Oh, I know what happens here. I know how this turns out. So we're sort of watching, but not really. Or we're sort of hearing, but not really. And it starts to lack the ability to rattle us, we might say, to change us, to transform us. Well, the themes and the priorities of this little book of Obadiah are surprising. They're rather unfamiliar, I would say even for those who are seasoned in the faith. And indifference is a prominent theme in the book of Obadiah. He puts it this way, on the day that you stood aloof while Babylon destroyed your brother, you were like one of them. This is the sin of indifference, the sin of not caring about those who suffer or who are oppressed. So their suffering literally makes no difference to us. See, indifference is shrugging our shoulders at those who are hurting or at those who are suffering. It's kind of a, oh well. It is standing aloof, to use the language right out of Obadiah. It's turning away, it's walking on by without even noticing. And it's pretty obvious when we think of this, indifference is a giant step in the direction of dehumanizing another person or dehumanizing another group of people and stripping them of their God-given dignity. See, indifference is not a sin we often name or spend much energy thinking about or confessing. Think about it, anger, that lands on a lot of us. Lust, maybe, dishonesty, pride, for sure. But indifference, 
I mean, we don't often include indifference in these sin lists. Elie Wiesel was sent to Auschwitz in 1944, and most of his family was killed while they were there by the Nazi killing machine. But what stunned Wiesel the most about the Nazis was not the evil they authored, but the way in which people and whole nations stood aloof while it happened. He called them, and this is his phrase, the spectator. Those who did nothing to intervene. And in a speech given back in 1999, he said these words, of course, indifference can be tempting. More than that, seductive. It is so much easier to look away from victims. It is so much easier to avoid such rude interruptions to our work, our dreams, our hopes. It is, after all, awkward, troublesome to be involved in another person's pain and despair. Yet for the person who is indifferent, his or her neighbor are of no consequence. And therefore, their lives are meaningless. Their hidden or even visible anguish is of no interest. Indifference reduces the other to an abstraction. Indifference is always the friend of the enemy, for it benefits the aggressor, never his victim, whose pain is magnified when he or she feels forgotten. The political prisoner in his cell, the hungry children, the homeless refugees, not to respond to their plight, not to relieve their solitude by offering them a spark of hope is to exile them from human memory. And in denying their humanity, we betray our own. See, in a world like ours, where dignity has become earned compensation instead of an unconditional God-given right, and we are quick to categorize people as winners or losers, us or them, haves or have-nots, good or bad, enemy or friend, right or wrong, Edomite or Israelite. In this kind of cultural setting that we now live in, indifference grows, and believe it or not, it becomes acceptable. See, if someone is in the wrong category, if someone has a label on them that we or the people we tribe with determines to be wrong, then it gradually starts to seem right to not care about them. If someone is one of them instead of being part of us, and it's only a matter of time before we ignore their struggles and their sufferings and maybe even think they are getting exactly what they deserve. You see how this happens. So Esau's descendants, Jacob's brother Esau, older brother, Esau's descendants, the Edomites, were told, stood by and watched while their brothers were killed and while their brother's nation was destroyed. Their indifference, according to God through Obadiah, made them as guilty as the invading Babylonians who wielded the sword. So, we are, yes, we are, our brother's and sister's keeper. The one we encounter in our life who is suffering, who is oppressed, who needs help, is our neighbor. This is Luke chapter 10, if you want a Bible verse. They are our friend, our sister, our brother. They are us. One of Elie Wiesel's famous quotes is this, human suffering anywhere concerns men and women everywhere. And that's probably true. 
But what is definitely true is that because of the heart of God and because he has acted on our behalf and intervened in our lives to restore and redeem us, what is definitely true is that human suffering anywhere most definitely concerns followers of Jesus everywhere. So a really simple way to confront indifference is to, and here I use a phrase from Wiesel, to offer a spark of hope to anyone who crosses our path that is hurting or suffering or struggling. It can't get any simpler than that. Offer a spark of hope to whomever we intersect with who's suffering or struggling or hurting. So we have this heart ministry that we have been a part of. It's not ours, but we have plenty of people at Oak Hills who uh, serve at it and work at it. Heart exists to care for the homeless in our community. And here at Oak Hills, because of COVID and a bunch of other things, we will be um, housing those who are part of Heart, the clients uh, of Heart, the homeless people who rely on this ministry, starting on January 31st for about a month or so. And we need volunteers for that. Now, I'm not trying to make a push out of this, but that's a simple way to say there's a group of people that are my brother, are my sister, are my neighbor, and a way to serve. So indifference is the opposite of love. The other theme I want to mention that bursts through this book of Obadiah is this. Family feuds can have generational consequences. Think about it. Jacob and Esau were twins, and their relationship hit a rough spot, and 800 years later, the ripple effect continued. Now, I don't want to stomp around in this sacred territory and suggest family challenges are simple to figure out or sort out or that reconciliation is just a couple of easy steps. Family issues are complicated. Family issues are hard. But we would be sidestepping an obvious implication of this Obadiah story if we didn't press into this at least a little bit. The indifference of these Edomites began <coughs> in a broken family where the relationship between two brothers fell apart and was never healed. Just let that hit you for a second. Their indifference, we don't care, you don't exist, you haven't earned dignity, in fact, you warrant not being dignified. That all began in a broken family where the relationship between two brothers fell apart and was never healed. See, the dynamics in Jacob and Esau's family was really messed up. The Bible says their dad, Isaac, favored his oldest son, Esau, and their mom, Rebecca, favored Jacob. Their family culture was jacked up. And the indifference of the Edomites was born in the bitterness and animosity of that family. Generations were altered by this broken family. And you know and I know this is an excruciating heartache that many deal with in today's world. And again, I realize these difficulties in families are sacred ground. They're not fixed with three easy steps and they maybe can't be fixed, period. But it's important to at least acknowledge, acknowledge this again. I actually think that I don't say this kind of thing enough, but family relationships and dynamics and culture shape generations. Being with my mom 
over the week before she died, as she approached the end of her life, as often happens in these kinds of things, I was reminded of what really matters and what really doesn't matter. And very near the top of the list of things that matter is how we are doing as a dad or a mom or a parent and how our family's doing, the culture we're creating, the things we're instilling in our children. And I don't just mean parents with younger children. And I don't just mean parents where there's two parents in the same house. And I don't just mean parents where a, we would call it a young family. I mean parents whose kids are 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 70. How we're doing as a dad or a mom how our family's doing, the culture we're creating, the things we are imparting to our children is one of the things near the top of the list of what matters. You see, we pass on our unresolved pain. This story is a prime example. We pass on our unresolved pain. Our brokenness impacts the culture of our family. There's no way around this. Our biases, our anger, our grudges, this is a big one, our unforgiveness what we've never let go of, our bitterness, it impacts our children. Again, you pick the age of the child because it, it impacts them whatever the age. Our marriage has a lingering effect on our children and on our children's children. Our stuff, to put it briefly, uh, impacts others downstream one way or another. So the simple thing I want to say as we think about this Obadiah story is very practical. Pursue the hard work of reconciliation. We've talked about this on numerous occasions, but in these key relationships, marriage, family, with children, in friendships, in the church, pursue the hard work of reconciliation because the work matters and it can alter generations. Do the work. Now, realize something here. The work of reconciliation with the, within the context of a family is very often, I would say, most often, internal work for us to do on our own. Probably without the cooperation of the other. In other words, the work of reconciliation as I'm talking about it here, may not and probably will not be a two-way street, but a one-way street. We do the work because generations will be shaped. So this little book is packed with a powerful message. I mean, I dove into this. I'd be straight up with you. When I first got going in this, I thought, what in the world was I thinking? <laughs> Why are we doing this? I should have jumped over to the New Testament where things tend to be a little lighter and less complicated. I mean, this is heavy stuff. Kayla's reading this. I almost started laughing because I'm thinking people are probably going, where in the world is this going? I mean, it's hard stuff. But this little book is packed with powerful themes and a powerful message like God's heart for his people. God's passion for justice. Here's one we may not like. God's judgment on those who are indifferent to the oppression of others. 
It's also packed with this latent idea of family, family culture, family dynamics, unresolved conflict, bitterness, unforgiveness, and how these things have influence across generations. I read an amazing story this week that I think kind of pulls all this together and modernizes it. You may have heard about this, but a waitress in Orlando, Orlando, Florida, was serving a family in her restaurant on New Year's Day when she noticed a young boy at one of the tables she was waiting on. He was there with his family, but she noticed him. Something didn't look right to her. She noticed bruises on him. She noticed they weren't giving him any food. She noticed he looked thin. So she wrote a question on a piece of paper. We could call it an anti-indifference question. Here's what she wrote, do you need help? And then she found a way to show this young boy this question without anyone else at the table knowing what she was doing, and he shook his head no. But she wasn't convinced another move against indifference. So a little while later, she showed him the note yet again, and it simply said, do you need help? And this time he shook his head yes. So the manager of this restaurant called 911, and soon it was discovered that both the boy and his sister were being abused in every way. But now they've been rescued. And here's what I want you to think about. Generations will rise up and call this waitress blessed. Generations of people possibly were changed by that woman's single act. Think of the altered potential future because one person resisted the temptation of indifference. That, I would suggest to you, is the way of Jesus. And it all started with someone noticing and then taking action. Anti-indifference, refusing to stand aloof, refusing to lead the yield to the temptation of indifference, refusing to justify inaction by claiming to be too busy or by suggesting, well, that's not my problem. See, we are our brother's keeper our neighbor. We're called to love as followers of Christ. And we are called to love the hurting and the suffering soul right in front of us and around the world, for they are our neighbor. Well, I'd like to ask, I'd like to end by asking you to join me in prayer. So this is a bit of a longer prayer, but I'm going to just ask you to close your eyes as I lead us in this, that we might pray this together. And I'm going to be praying a prayer of confession and repentance that was written and distributed by our denomination this past week. I didn't have any idea this was coming. I worked up this message and then finally read what they had sent out. And it, I think, is a wonderful way to wrap up this message. So as we pray this today, we join with other churches and our conference of churches who are praying this as well. Let's pray together. God, we confess that too often we ignore the prayer of your son that we would be one so that the whole world would see your love for them. We confess that we have divided ourselves over power, 
politics and prestige, contrary to your teaching for unity in your spirit. We confess that to cover up this division, we have settled and even called for a false peace, one that ignores the pain of others and whitewashes the sins of the past that were committed as your church stood by silently complicit or that ignores the culture of death and lewdness that plagues a world you call to life and holiness through your power. We have sinned and plead that you would forgive our divisiveness. Give us the strength to live another way, to live truth with love. God, we confess that we have made an idol of our own security. When the events of the last week in the U.S. Capitol cause us to think the end of the world is near, we confess that we have not been moved to compassion by the atrocities against humanity around the world. We confess that we value our own security, our own well-being, and our own property over the lives of others whom you love with zealous passion. We have settled for the kingdom of this earth instead of longing for your kingdom. Break our hearts for a world you love that we have too often ignored. Teach us to be a neighbor. Remind us that we are our brother's keeper. God, we confess that in our worship at the idol of security, we have turned to political leaders and the power of this world to preserve and protect your church. We confess that, like your people of old, we run to those who have horses and chariots and we plead for an earthly king. God, forgive us when we lack faith in your kingdom as we attempt to align it and bolster it with a power that is foreign and incompatible with you, your kingdom, and your people. Give us hope in you, in your kingdom, and in the power of the resurrection, so Christ might be honored in and through us. Amen.
moment of our courage the power to make the peace we long to know It's a very uh, challenging thing to think about. I've had people over the years, I've thought it myself, where people will say, you know, we should dig deeper into the Bible, or I'm going to go dig deeper into the Bible, or our group is going to dig deeper into the Bible. And I have often said, you sure you want to do that? It's got this kind of mythical quality to it of we're going to dig deeper in the Bible and then we're going to know, oh, Obadiah is about this time where the Babylonians invaded the southern kingdom of Judah and hauled everybody away and their former brother, their brother, their relative stood by and they got in trouble for it. Nah, not really. Sort of, but not really. And it's this beauty of what we're trying to do here of do we really want this? Because as I read the pages of scripture and look at these stories from Genesis to Revelation and these teachings, here's what I see. I see life in the kingdom of God being spelled out for us in the most excruciating detail and setting before us a vision of what life can be that is far beyond what we can possibly imagine. And sometimes it is calling us to a place that we can't possibly fathom. It just seems, wait a minute, no way. I mean, he stole his birthright. Of course they're mad. Or this next week, Philemon. Yeah, but this guy ran away. and The kingdom, life in the kingdom. When Jesus is reigning, here's the path. I hope you'll join us as we, we walk this out because transformative and powerful things can happen when we put ourselves in front of it and say, God, I, I want to follow you. Just the, theme, just the lyric of this song, when we look into the face of, the, of, an, of our enemy, we see our brother you imagine being the kind of person, not trying to do that as spit flew out of your nostrils? I guess I love that person. But being the kind of person who is so experiencing the power of God within that those who are enemies 
become those we love. Kind of think that has something to do with something Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Imagine the transformation and the life that we begin to experience. So part of what this series is, is to invite you into this. Come here, yes, but engage. So in the app, there's a few things by way of action, by way of practice, by way of live this out. One of them has to do with the heart ministry for the homeless people that I mentioned a moment ago. And there should be contact information in there where you can follow up to get involved and volunteer. There's a couple other things, though. One has to do with this idea of pursuing reconciliation. Reaching out to someone in your family, maybe. One of your children. Oh, you can't possibly mean that. You have no idea what. No, I don't know what all went on. What would that look like to move toward that in a loving, reconciling way? Reach out. Do the work yourself, even if there's no response. And another one in preparation for next week is to read the book of Philemon. I assure you it will be a little less heavy than Obadiah. Probably enjoy it a tad bit more. But it stays on this theme of, wait a minute, God's asking us to do what? I would encourage you to read it as we proceed. Let me pray, and then Ashley will come and give the announcements. Our Heavenly Father, it is good to be together. It is uh, nourishing to be together. It's soul-giving to be together. And I'm thankful for the people of Oak Hills. I'm thankful for their love and support. I'm thankful for this journey that we are on together and in a stumbling and broken way, seeking to continue to find ways to live out the reality of your kingdom in the details of sometimes hard life. So we continue to pray for your spirit to dwell among us, to move among us, even this week, even today. I pray as we scatter that people will cross our paths a brother or a sister in need and we can offer them a spark of hope in word or in action. We pray that as we navigate this series that your Holy Spirit will use your scripture to speak to our souls and to the specifics of our lives and that who knows that maybe even transformation would be sparked as we reflect on these things. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.